Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Since several weeks, China is struggling with a coronavirus outbreak, and some China experts characterize this outbreak as a stress test for Xi Jinping. In this episode of our Merrick's Experts podcast, I want to discuss the consequences of the coronavirus outbreak for the political and economic stability in China. My guest is Victor Shi, one of the leading experts for elite politics in China and associate professor at the University of California, San Diego. My name is Kerstin Lose-Friedrich. Victor, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Victor, you just published a book entitled Economic Shocks and Authoritarian Stability. You analyzed the question under which conditions authoritarian systems and regimes can survive economic shocks. What led you to this question? Uh, well, first of all, the book is a collective effort uh, between myself and a number of political scientists um, based in the United States. They, uh, people like uh, Lisa Bladis at Stanford University, Dan Slater at University of Michigan, um, Joe Wong at University of Toronto, uh, all pitched in and contributed to this. Um, this is a question I think is um, important, right? So, you know, what happens to an authoritarian regime during an economic crisis? Uh, and an economic crisis is very important because it means that the overall amount of resources available to the economy and therefore to the regime shrinks very suddenly during a crisis. Uh, and how do authoritarian leaders deal with the shrinkage of resources? Can authoritarian leaders continue to maintain the support coalition that he or she had previous to the crisis? Uh, and ultimately, of course, um, you know, I'm interested in whether a regime can survive uh, such a shrinkage in resources. Would you describe the coronavirus outbreak mainly as an economic shock? It is a very complex, I think I would say definitely a shock, a very complex shock, uh, which takes on many different dimensions. Uh, because unlike a conventional economic shock, which oftentimes is, you know, caused by sanctions or global financial crisis, and oftentimes in, in those cases, the, the only sort of immediate consequence, at least, is just a shrinkage of resources. Uh, but the coronavirus is very multidimensional. So not only is there a shrinkage in resources because economic activities sort of grinds to a halt, um, The virus, of course, demands the regime to spend a lot of resources, mobilize a lot of different forces, uh, such as the neighborhood committees, the People's Liberation Army, the police, to quarantine you know, the entire province of Hubei. Uh, so it requires a lot of mobilization. So, so it's an additional test on the regime, if you will. But our prediction uh, in the book, well, there's not, not, not a lot of very precise prediction in the book because we try to be uh, more sort of inductive. But one, one of the empirical regularities, let's say, we witness is that uh, if the shock is a short one, then uh, most likely for regimes where there's strong party system, which definitely is the case in China, and also strong state control of the financial system, then, you know, it's not much of a challenge to regimes like that. 
and so far, you know, it's been you know a month or two this this shock. So so we're still in that territory. But if the spread of the virus were to continue, you know, into the middle of the year, into the fall, then I think it it begins to turn into a longer shock, and and then the situation becomes、uh, more uncertain. Let's have a deeper dive and have a look. What are the concrete、um, economic impacts of the current crisis?、Uh, yeah. So so far, the impact has been very severe, because basically, whereas normally、uh, after the you know Lunar New Year, migrant workers who went home to、um, their hometowns, oftentimes in rural China, would return to the cities. To their offices, to their factories, and start to work.、Uh, and also, you know, as they return to the cities, they would begin to spend money. You know, go out, buy things, spend a lot of money in restaurants. You know, people,、um, all ethnic Chinese, I think. Well, everyone likes to eat, but but you know, we we all like think, well, we're the ones who like to eat the most.、Uh, but anyway, you know, people in China spend a lot of money in restaurants. A lot of those activities have been reduced to zero. Right, so no one is going to restaurants in the entire province of Hubei. I mean, Hubei is a province of you know over 50 million people. They're not going to restaurants,、uh, and and that's quite important, right? So if you think about consumption, when you go out to eat, you know you order one dish. You know, there's vegetable in the dish. There's some meat、uh, sometimes, but you know during home quarantine, people are often just reading,、uh, eating a package of ramen noodles. Uh, and that's a lot less consumption than you would do in a restaurant.、Uh, so it has had a very severe、uh, impact. And well, on the production side, it's a big problem. You know, obviously, if workers are not in the factories, you cannot produce. So that's happening.、Uh, no one in the offices. A lot of services cannot be performed without、um, people in the offices. So all of that is、uh, happening. To varying degrees,、uh, to many major cities in China, so economic activities have been、um, severely impacted. What is your estimation? How much percentage of the <coughs> GDP will cost China this phase of pause? That also depends on how high the inflation rate you think is,、uh, which I think is actually is high,、uh, as officially disclosed recently, five percent. I think that's about right、uh, because of. High food inflation. So, in real terms, I would say almost certainly in reality. Because I don't know what the National Bureau of Statistics will announce because they they announce all kinds of figures. But but in reality, I think first quarter in China most likely had negative growth. You know, for the first time since the 2008-2009 financial crisis. But even then, I think first quarter 2009 might have been positive. So the interesting question is how long this lasts, right?、Uh, the party is desperately trying to resume、uh, economic activities, but the virus is still、uh, spreading. You know, it's very contagious.、Uh, so if this, you know, goes into the second quarter, we may see、uh, very weak to no economic growth in second quarter. Also, in real terms, right? So once you take into account inflation, you know. Which subtracts from your real growth.、Um, you could also have negative growth in second quarter、uh, and very weak growth. You know, even if the virus sort of goes away、uh, by July because of the heat、uh, or something, 
you know, you could still have very weak growth in uh, third and fourth quarter. Uh, so, so it's pretty big short-term shock. The question is whether it spreads to another major city. If it does, then I think it's uh, a bit more challenging. In your book, you analyze different aspects of as the key factors to explain whether a regime can survive an economic shock or not. And these factors are the duration of the crisis, of course, um, the regime's control over the financial system and the strengths of the ruling party. Given these criteria, how would you assess the current situation in China? So again, I think the duration of the crisis is, is very important for a regime like China because China has a lot of favorable conditions for regime survival, such as a strong party system uh, and strong control over financial institutions. But I would argue that um, as the duration of the crisis uh, is lengthened, uh, especially if it's lengthened sort of unexpectedly, it can really have some non-linear effect on um, the stability of the regime, right? So actors in the regime, even though the regime controls the party, controls uh, financial institutions, if actors in the regime expect that, uh, you know, the crisis is going to last for a very long time, it really discounts their sort of uh, expected utility, if you will, for, for supporting the regime uh, and can... Um, you know, especially if they think there is a, a better alternative out there um, and can really change the calculus and potentially change their behavior in terms of their support uh, of the regime. And this is especially important for insiders, right? So people who are part of the Chinese Communist Party, especially uh, people very high up in the, in the Chinese Communist Party. If you look at other similar regimes uh, like the Soviet Union, uh, East Germany, etc., they ultimately collapse because insiders within the regime, for because of some calculus on their part, decided to give up power. You know, in the face of very large challenges to the regimes, you know, in East Germany's, Germany's case, obviously, you know, widespread protests, uh, in the Soviet case, uh, just increasing economic problems. Um, you know, they just decided to give up power. Uh, but that's something that can happen. We, we know it can happen even with very strong uh, party control, even with very strong control over uh, financial institutions. But again, you know, this crisis so far is very short. So most likely if it's over by the middle of the year, it's not going to change the, the calculus of the elite very much. You are mentioning also the importance of financial control. Is there any financial resources needed in Hubei province to handle the crisis at the moment? Or is it more about the general institutional stability? Yeah, so the, the amount of resources required to fight the disease, not just in Hubei. I mean, Hubei obviously you know, requires the most resources, but also in the rest of China. Um, You know, when you demand the uh, the neighborhood committees to to guard the gates to the compounds 24 hours a day, uh, I think the regime has to pay these people extra. I mean, they're they're not. I mean, they're all sort of good Communist Party members, but uh, these days people don't do things for free. The workers who are building uh, these hospitals in 10 days, they're getting paid a lot of money. 
the medical workers who are going to Hubei to help with the the effort, um, they're getting paid bonuses. Uh, so when you add all the extra costs uh, together, uh, the cost of transporting, you know, obviously a large amount of equipment uh, to Hubei province, um, it is quite a bit of additional resources. And and the problem in China is that local governments uh, almost across the board, I mean, there are some exceptions like Beijing and Shanghai, but local governments across the board are bankrupt. So in, in the sense that they don't collect um, nearly as much revenue required to run the entire government. They already required a lot of transfer payments from the central government. But in this time of crisis, in this time of stoppage in economic activities, they, they all now require a huge amount of transfer resources from the central government. So, so it is very challenging. So you mentioned the neighborhood committees. What other important factors for stabilities are there to mm -hmm. handle this crisis? We know the Chinese government has made use of electronic surveillance uh, very, very heavily. They're, I think now they're more or less tracking the movement of every person in China with a cell phone, at least. In order to, obviously, you know, the, the good <laughs> sort of a, a good purpose of using that is to trace infect the patients and those who have been potentially in contact with them. Uh, so I think they've used that technology, you know, fairly effectively. I guess time will tell, right, how effective it is. Um, I mean, the problem with this kind of tracking is that people still, some people still are desperate to move around because they want to go see their family members or they, you know, they need to get something done. And Now everyone in China knows that they're being tracked by their phone and many of them can just leave the phones at home and still go and do do what they need to do. And so there's there's a kind of a diminishing return at some point. So surveillance, obviously very important. And then, of course, um, you know, just having the Communist Party apparatus um, of people watching and enforcing the will of the party That's always very important, and that's being mobilized uh, so far relatively effectively. Although I've heard that in some neighborhoods, the committees are not very functional at all, and, and people are too afraid to guard the door and, and that kind of stuff. So, so I think there's some variation. In the case of the mayor of Wuhan, uh, is this just an exemption that this chain of command still works? Uh, yeah, so the mayor of Wuhan, um, he obeyed all the orders from the central government but when uh he was uh, asked on tv you know uh, was it your fault that you didn't tell the people of Wuhan about this he shifted the blame upward but he wasn't being specific right so it might have been so what he said was uh well you know i'm not at liberty to disclose this information to the public i have to report this to my superior and get permission That is almost a violation of party discipline because obviously you're not supposed to disclose you know, a lot of these internal procedures. You're not supposed to shift blame upward to, to higher levels of government, but he did that publicly. So it's, yeah, it shows that um, some of the discipline has been fraying. Uh, but overall, I think it's, you know, it doesn't look like, I, at least I haven't seen any large instances of you know, people just not, Uh, obeying the orders.
So where do you see any potential pathways for instability? Mm. Uh, so again, it's the duration of, of the crisis and also uh, how widespread it is. Uh, so one of the things I worry about now, the government's pushing for the resumption of economic activities uh, very quickly, right? So this, you know, remember at least the public knowing the disease spreading widely was really in late January. We are getting into late February. The incubation period is 14 days, could be even longer, uh, according to some accounts that I've seen. And suddenly, the Chinese government wants everyone back to work. Uh, and of course, it's happening very slowly. But um, you know, people going back to the offices, to factories, can then still spread the disease. You know, if if it spreads to another major city besides uh, Wuhan outside of Hubei province, I think it would be kind of a problem because already a lot of the medical resources in the whole country of China have been poured into Wuhan. If they don't have enough medical resources to meet the crisis in another city, that could really strain resources. If it spreads to the military, right? So the military, of course, is enforcing a lot of this uh, quarantine, uh, especially at the provincial level, shipping medical equipment, then that could be very challenging. Yeah, I mean, the the problem is it's kind of a confidence game with uh, authoritarian regimes, right? So if people lose confidence that the regime has enough resources and, you know, ammunition, if you will, to fight any kind of shock, but in, in this case, the coronavirus, then then you could have uh, what what's known in the literature as defection. I mean, it doesn't sound like, <laughs> it, it doesn't mean like defecting to the U.S., or defecting whatever, it just... It just means that uh, regime insiders would uh, either just stop helping the regime or uh, advocate for an alternative sort of form of government or alternative coalition besides the current one, right? So in, in a lot of communist regime, most oftentimes is, you know, uh, the elites high up in the party get together and vote the current leader out of office, you know, this sort of almost, uh, well, this did happen to Khrushchev, you know, being the most uh, famous case. So something like that uh, could happen if if the disease were to spread widely. And now that Xi Jinping has taken full responsibility to all the policies that have been enacted by the government so far, because, you know, he knew about the, the problem uh, in early January, people now can blame him for uh, a bad outcome. Why did state-led media emphasize this point, that he was much earlier informed than originally was known? A, initially, I think there was a total panic about this uh, by mid to late January. In Wuhan, it was spreading very quickly, very widely, uh, as we now know. I think even this suggests to me even the leadership panicked about it. Uh, so Xi Jinping sort of disappeared for a few days, uh, maybe in sort of self-isolation to, to make sure that he wouldn't get it. And uh, basically, he also, you know, appointed Li Keqiang as the head of the, you know, coronavirus leading group uh, to share both the blame and also responsibility uh, with somebody else, which is pretty unprecedented because up to that point, you know, he has tried to consolidate power, everything into his own hands 
in this case, he did not do it. But now I think there is a bit more confidence, at least within the Chinese government, that the disease can be more or less contained within Hubei province. There's maybe some kind of treatment that are, you know, uh, seen to be effective in maybe not curing the disease, but at least alleviating the symptoms substantially. So that's given the regime more confidence and Xi Jinping himself more confidence that this is not going to be a huge crisis of a national scale, at least so far, maybe that's the assessment, which then he's balancing that against the need for him to constantly signal that he is in charge, right? So, you know, if you disappear from public, somebody else is in charge of the rescue effort, uh, then people in the regime will increasingly think, well, what's happening? Like, who is in charge? Like, maybe Li Keqiang is now the leader of the party. He obviously, Xi Jinping obviously does not want that perception to take hold. And so he had to come back out and say, no, 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 actually, I was in charge all along. Even risking that, you know, obviously, people will, you know, ordinary people in China will already start to blame him for, well, if you knew about this in early January, why didn't you tell us? But that is less important for an authoritarian leader than the perception within the party that he's still in charge, right? That's that's much more important for an authoritarian leader than popular, you know, approval. But what is at stake for Xi Jinping if he doesn't really handle this crisis successfully? And the question is, where are the red lines? I mean, you, mm -hmm. you mentioned if it goes to another city, but... I mean, how many people will have to die before people really argue what well, this is going mm -hmm. out of control? Well, I think the red line's fairly clear, actually, in this case, because what happened in Wuhan was, you know, obviously a large number of people got sick. But, but basically, if you look at the statistics, you know, let's however many people get sick, roughly 10 to 15 percent of them become very sick and they require sort of intensive care. Uh, and... Every city, every place on earth, really, there is a limited capacity to take care of intensive care patients because uh, that kind of care requires specialized equipment, uh, you know, apparatus to help with breathing or with injecting oxygen in the bloodstream, etc. That's in limited supply. Once you overwhelm that capacity, which is sort of what happened in Wuhan, then a lot of Uh, very sick people are not going to be treated. A lot of people will start dying. So far, we have not seen that happen in other uh, Chinese cities outside of uh, Hubei province. I think there are other cities like that in Hubei province that the Chinese government is not telling people. I really believe that. But outside of Hubei, if you believe in the official statistics, seems sort of okay. You know, if you have a few hundred cases, that means, you know, you have like 30, 40 cases with heavy symptoms that's still within the capacity of major cities to treat these people. But once it, the heavy cases get up to like two, three, four hundred, then it begins to overwhelm the capacity. And so then that's when a panic will begin in the city. It will be seen as being out of control. Economic activities will grind to a halt once again. And then I think uh, now that Xi Jinping has taken responsibility of all the major decisions, then maybe the elite will begin to um, reassess. This is Merrick's Experts.
Victor, do you think that social media challenges the Chinese government in dealing with the whole situation at the moment? Initially, yeah, it was very challenging because uh, you begin to have uh, people in China, even in my WeChat groups, even very patriotic Chinese saying that, you know, what is the government doing? You know, really questioning the ability of the government, uh, even challenging, you know, whether the people of China need the, <laughs> the party anymore. I mean, given that, you know, if people themselves are shipping all this medical supplies to Wuhan, why do they need the government? And so the government has had to really fight against that perception, you know, by, of course, shipping a lot more resources and, and personnel to Wuhan, but also then uh, imposing censorship, launching a massive uh, propaganda campaign uh, to show the power of the Chinese government. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, it's been challenging. But so far, I think they're just through very draconian censorship have been able to fight against it. I mean, worst comes to worst, they can just shut down the internet, frankly, which which is always an option for, for the Chinese Communist Party. You were analyzing different crises crisis that uh, the Chinese government had to uh, struggle with in the past, like the SARS virus uh, in 2002, 2003, um, the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, then the uh, protests in Hong Kong, 2014. Now we have the fact that there are different yeah, lines mm -hmm. of conflict at the same time. We still have uh, Hong Kong, which is an unstable political situation. We have an economic slowdown for quite a while now. And now we have the coronavirus. Does this play a major role in your assessment of how it will go on with the Chinese government? Uh, yeah, to some extent, because, um, I mean, one definite impact I can see is that We, we all know, and you know, Merricks has done very good work uh, on this topic, that China wants to be the global industrial and technology leader, right? So, but in order to do that, obviously, you have to attract a lot of talent, uh, especially, you know, people from China, sometimes even people from abroad who have, you know, advanced degrees and education in computer science and engineering, biology, medical sciences to come to China to work, uh, to contribute to the research effort. And of course, you know, one attractive aspect of uh, doing research in China is that, you know, if, if you're a specialist in the right technology, they give you tons of money, there's sort of like endless amount of money. But events like this, uh, like hiding the spread of the coronavirus from the public, really reveals that there's some things that money cannot buy, you know, like public confidence, The confidence that your government, you know, in some sense has your interests in mind uh, instead of their own interests. You know, of course, I, I believe all governments are self-interested in some ways, except in democracies, it pays to be, to, you know, appear at least to, to take the public interest in mind because you have to get elected, you know, once in a while. You know, those are very important things. And I, I bet that a lot of uh, people who uh, you know, might have had an option of working overseas in Europe or in America, who have decided to take their families back, you know, not back, but like to China uh, with their families to work there are now regretting it because of this, you know, at least initially, a complete failure to serve the public, uh, to inform the public 
these are things that can have real consequences. You know, people are dying, people are getting sick in Wuhan because of this. And I really expect a wave of uh, out-migration, right? So, and, and the people most able to leave China and immigrate to another country are the most talented or the most educated people, right? Because if you're a good computer scientist, you can find a job, you know, in a lot of different places. So many of them will decide to leave. Um, so that's definitely going to be one Im one impact, and that's going to undermine, uh, of course, China's quest to be a dominant power in technology in the world. Currently, we see a major discussion on the question if decoupling is the answer to the U.S.-China trade war and the, the whole rise of China. Um, would you expect this crisis to trigger that decoupling process? So I think it, it will enforce it a little bit uh, because from a company's perspective, you know, obviously a company mostly just wants to make money. You know, they don't care about all this geopolitical stuff. You know, obviously, U.S. Uh, policies, U.S. Uh, efforts to try to decouple um, the U.S. and China, at least in some sectors. I, mean, I actually don't think it's that bad overall because, you know, China needs to buy a lot of food from the U.S., you know, and U.S. needs to buy a lot of cheap clothing from China. That's that's not going to go away, <laughs> you know, like those kinds of trade. That's actually the vast majority of all the trade between the U.S. and China, so so that's fine. But, you know, talk about technology-related stuff, you know, but from a company's perspective, it's just different kinds of shocks, right? So it's just like sometimes there are policy interventions, you know, whether it's from the U.S. or from China, that's going to make uh, doing business difficult. So a better strategy is to diversify a bit, you know, instead of producing everything in China, maybe produce some stuff in India, in Indonesia, have different vendors that are producing in different locations. And the coronavirus just reinforces this, right? So because this disease uh, is spreading in China, the next one may start in India, may start in Indonesia, some other country. In any event, uh, it just really compel people to diversify their supply chains. Uh, so I think this is just another event that will will encourage the smarter, the larger in investors to diversify their supply chains. Some people already argue that there is a chance or an opportunity for the CCP in um, having this crisis at the moment. And in the end, they will prove to be the better crisis handler compared to other political systems. Would you agree or are you hesitating at the moment? Well, uh, of course, the Chinese government has like a massive capacity to quarantine people and, and, and track people. But for a disease like that, that is maybe not the most important thing. Uh, what's really important is to alert the public early on, like very, very early on. Um, so I don't know the case of like around Europe or whatever, but like in the US, I mean, I know the CDC puts out these alerts even when there's like one case or two cases of some unusual uh, infectious disease uh, and at least try to educate the public uh, on like how to you know keep yourself safe from these diseases and and that's very very important actually because it's important to help limit the spread of the disease because by the time you need the technology to track the movement of like millions of people, it means the disease has spread very, very widely already. And it's almost sort of too late to deploy all this technological means and, and all this kind of stuff. So so I think 
uh, in this case at least, you know, uh, disclosures to the public, providing very good information to the public uh, immediately is very important. And that's something that China, I think, inherently cannot do, right? Because the way that information flows in China is from the bottom upward. Um, and, and that just inherently takes a lot of time because, you know, officials sitting in Beijing, whether it's Xi Jinping or somebody else, at first they can't possibly know like what uh, rumors, sometimes it's rumors or what information about disease becomes very important. And it really it's beyond their capacity, like as smart as the Communist Party is, they can't possibly know that. And the only sensible course in that case is to disclose to the public uh, information, the best sort of scientific knowledge at a given time to warn them. And that's just not something the Chinese government can, can do. I would say ever do, because the nature of the regime is to channel information upward. Thank you, Victor. Thank you for joining us today. I talked to Victor Shu, one of the leading experts on elite politics in China and associate professor at the University of California, San Diego. Thank you very much. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.